The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. Hey, it's till 5 and Monday. It is a Monday of what's going to be a great week. Lots of hockey this week, <laughs> which makes it great. 3.30, we're off the air to get, make room for the City Ford Faceoff Show. Tomorrow at 4, off the air mm-hmm. to make room for the City Ford Faceoff Show. And then again on what? Thursday. Thursday. Yeah. Nice. Love my hockey. <laughs> and how about them? They're playing fantastic, too. They really are. Yeah. Uh, did you, did you, I'm, we just finished two hours Oilers now, but I, I listened to the uh, broadcast. Boy, I, I really like. Uh, that Jack, Jack Michaels, Jack, he's yeah. something else, Nate. Yeah, he really is. He, it's theater of the mind listening to him. And then, uh, you know, the, the sort of the chemistry between him and Bob, I find quite entertaining, too. <laughs> I was driving to Hassar, so I, I listened to it the whole way down. And then, as good fortune would have it, uh, the show was delayed by enough time that I was able to hear the end of the game. So that's great. Then went from my car to the stage and did the show. Ooh, I've got big news before we uh, talk about today. Mm. I'm going to be a grandfather again. Jeepers. Yeah, I know. They're That'll just be popping four. them out left, right, and center. Well, I'm not, but... They are. They are. Which one I, this time? This uh, will be the second for my son, Dave, and his wife, Victoria. Oh, so she, them. Yeah, it was her birthday on Saturday, and she used mm. it as an opportunity to make the announcement. And this what? coincidence would have it, so I'm, I'm driving down to Hassar with uh, Hunter, and we have to pass uh, Euro- Ch- yes. Chestermere mm. to get to Hassar. So as I'm, uh, as I'm turning the corner in Calgary... You, we get the Facebook announcement. It's Victoria's birthday. Well, we knew that. Um, and she's pregnant. So I looked at Hunter and went, uh, eh, we got time, and zipped off the highway, ran to their door, rang the doorbell, hugged her, congratulated her, wished her a happy birthday, got back in the car, and went to Hisar. That was the quickest oh, visit ever. Look at that. Mm-hmm. Congratulations, Grandpa. Yeah, thanks. Fourth, right? Yeah, kind and of all boys a, right now. Yeah, so I was just going to say, hoping for a, a girl this time. But because whatever. they've all they've all been out my house. I'm just trying to remember who everybody is still. Not, not the grandchildren. Not the grandchildren, the parents. Right, right. Yeah, they have all been at your house. Dave's wife. Dave's wife, uh, Victoria, yeah. So, yeah, that'll be... And, you know, I don't know. Is there any difference between a grandson and a granddaughter in terms of spoilage? Probably not. Um, I, I don't mean they go bad. I mean in terms of... <laughs> I would I would suspect that um, that granddaughters can sometimes have grandfathers wrapped around their finger. Mm, probably um, true. Just like you know, daughters, da- daughters and yeah. dads. Yeah. So that'll yeah. be interesting. Well, we congratulations. That's great news. Yeah. Um, you know what? We're going to switch gears here at two o eight. We don't have a lot of time on the show today. As we said, it's only a ninety minute show today instead of four hours. So want to get to this topic as it's been talked about on this show over the past couple of years, and there is hope that a change may be on the way to help those who serve on jury duty. Now, last week, St. Albert Edmonton MP Michael Cooper introduced a private member's bill that would help jurors deal with the fallout from listening to disturbing testimony and uh, looking at graphic photos. It would amend Section 649, which prohibits jurors from disclosing their deliberations. They would now be allowed, if approved, to talk with a licensed medical practitioner, like a doctor, a psychiatrist, or psychologist. Hmm. Uh, Mark uh, Ferrant, a former juror, has been uh, vocal on the need for change in developing PTSD from uh, serving on the jury for a murder, tri- a murder trial. Sorry, he joins us now. Hi, Mark. Hi there. So I have to ask now, just your background. Back in 2014, you served as a jury foreman in a murder case. Are you like most people who kind of 
they're jealous of people who get jury duty. Did you know what you were signing up for? Well, I, I didn't know what I was signing up for, and uh, I, I had never really met anyone personally who'd been on a, um, in jury duty for anything significant, um, you know, aside from um, some sort of minor cases. But yeah, uh, like a lot of Canadians, when I received that summons, I, I'd never been involved in the, the justice system before. I didn't really even know how a Canadian court worked. Hmm. So it was all pretty alien to me. So, Mark, and, and this trial involved um, uh, a woman who had been uh, brutally killed by her partner. There was a, it was stab, throat slashing and stabbing, multiple stabbing. Was there any guidance whatsoever, Mark, for you on how to handle what you would be seeing, seeing or dealing with as, as this started or even as, as, as you made your way through it all? No, there was nothing. Um, I think that's a pretty common practice mm. across the board. Um, it, it's really at the discretion of the judge in the case, but in our case, and nothing against the, the justice in my case at all, but um, we were silent throughout. Um, we were um, we were given some provisions here and there to make uh, appointments and the like, but in terms of how to conduct yourself and, and personally and emotionally and mentally, no, there was nothing. We, we, we were really at the the mercy of how the the trial progressed throughout and you're not allowed to talk to anybody are you you're not um you're not allowed to talk to um your loved ones you're not allowed to talk to colleagues you're not allowed to talk to anybody um about the trial uh certainly not on social media you're supposed to abandon all of those things rightly so and um you're really in a vacuum until the trial is over in terms of releasing that and then like a lot of jurors that that we've learned over over the course of time um those feelings don't go away they they stay with you and they can deepen over over the course of time um and i learned that as i got um sicker and sicker post-trial and when i reached out to the to the courthouse which seemed to be the most logical place in Ontario at the time, there were there was nothing for me as a as a former juror unless it had been issued by the judge huh. in my trial. Huh? Were you just out of curiosity sequestered during that trial? We weren't sequestered during the trial. We were sequestered during deliberation. Okay, uh, because it seems to me, and maybe you know, obviously that isn't the case. It would seem to me that there's a, a doctor-patient confidentiality that would allow you, even in light of the fact that you're serving on a jury, to seek help if you were struggling uh, emotionally? Well, certainly post-trial, um, I, I would have thought that would have been the case. But when I started to, um, through my family doctor, once I found out that the courthouse uh, avenue wasn't available to me, um, I was surprised at the number of clinicians that said, I can't talk to you because you're a juror. Hmm. It's illegal for us to have a conversation. So I received a list of, of potential psychologists from through my family doctor, and, and I essentially went down this list and started to cold call practitioners and, and talk about who I was. And, you know, you had practitioners that said, you know, my schedule is full, I can't take on a new patient. And then there were others who just said, I, I, I can't talk to you because of legality. Hmm. And even my wow. own um, employer uh, assistance program was ill-equipped to handle me. So I worked for a big employer at the time, and when I called them, they said, nope, we, we can't talk to you. We don't have, um, we don't have a framework 
um, we're not prepared for this. We, we can't talk to you. And all the while I was doing that, I kept thinking to myself, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be the person um, responsible for finding my own care after I've sat through a horrific murder trial. And I, and I can't be the only one that this has happened to. And it turned out I wasn't. So, Mark, I have to ask, and, and, you know, I'm just in the interest of really understanding this, I can imagine, and it's not happening yet on our text line or, or anywhere else, but I can imagine that we have learned so much in the last five years about PTSD that some might argue, well, wait a second, how can you equate sitting on a jury for a week or two with the PD, uh, PTSD of, say, veterans, for example. I mean, did mm -hmm. you know, can you, can you speak to that? Well, I, I don't think PTSD necessarily develops. And again, I'm not a clinician. Mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not a medical expert. I'm, I'm an activist and, and an advocate. So my trial was four months long. Um, certainly, you're sitting there and you're ingesting this, this evidence. So you have a screen in front of you, maybe about um, 20 inches away from your face, and you're being bombarded with crime scene um, evidence, huh. photographs, video testimony in some cases of, um, of horrific, horrific scenes of violence. And that... If when you're when you're subjected to it over and over again, and you're not able to interact with it in the sense that I can't turn my head away from it, I can't raise my hand to the judge or anyone else in the courtroom and say I've had enough. I need to turn away. Huh. I can't even really emotionally acknowledge it. Huh. So over time, that does have an impact. I'll bet. And we can go all the way back to the Bernardo jurors who yeah. I talked to, and the justice in that case. Um, who spoke with me privately, and that's that's how it happens. And in some in some cases, it's not necessarily even the evidence; it's the um, or, or the the video testimony and the images. It's hearing the testimony from the the victim on the stand or individuals on the stand. That all culminates in in a form of post traumatic stress disorder. So, in the same you know, um, first responders and the jurors see the same evidence. So one sees it firsthand at the scene, and the other sees it in the courtroom. Huh. And we're both bookends of the system of justice, right? We're closing the case that the same first responder um, answered physically. Yet one has access to, to, to care and, and provisions, yeah. and the other does not, in the sense of the juror. Mark so we're all exposed to the same evidence. Mark Ferrant joining us this afternoon. So obviously you would see this move, this private member's bill, as a, as a good first step. But I suspect that you would also believe that there's much, much more to be done. Uh, what, would you, what would you say on top of this needs to be done, Mark? Well, the, the Justice Committee met uh, last year and studied juror support and mental health. Um, for uh, for the for the better part of a year, and they came out with twelve recommendations that uh, in their report in May, everything from providing you know debriefing sessions after after trial, which it doesn't happen universally, um, um, providing security for jurors in the same sense that the crown and the judge, and you know I've heard from from jurors who've gone through um, and are involved in gang. Um, trials where 
they don't feel safe going back to their car after the end of the day because they're walking through the same doors that the witnesses and, and other gang members who are sitting in the public box, um, they're walking through the same door of those individuals, and they're being intimidated. And those, those are real stories from real jurors who said, you know, I didn't feel safe walking back to my car. I felt like I was being followed. Hmm. Um, so there's a lot more that we can do. We can, we can provide, you know, even better pay for jurors. Some, some jurors are receiving well below minimum wage to sit in, in court for almost a year. Um, so there's a lot that we can do to make the experience better, and it's, and it's also um, promoting jury duty. Because a lot of people, when they get that summons, the first thing that they have that goes through their mind is, how am I going to get out of this? Yeah. I don't, want, I don't want to do it. And that's not the right impression, yeah. right? We want this to be um, a civic responsibility that people go in with an open mind. Hmm. You know, I'm just thinking as you're speaking that the prosecution would want would want the evidence to be graphic and shocking, and they would want to have that effect on the jury because they're hoping for a positive outcome for for their side. But I hadn't really thought about the other side of it, though, as to the effect it had. Did it have an immediate effect on you, or was it over the course of the months? Was it afterwards? When did it really take effect? Well, it, I, I think for me it was... It was afterwards. It didn't. It didn't have um, an effect on me there. It did. I, I was stressed certainly, but I sort of chalked it up to the burden of the juror. And it was when those images didn't leave me. When I'm sitting in mm. in meetings and I'm just having this stuff tear through my mind. You know, driving to work in the park with my kids at at dinner parties and just sort of watching me, you know, uh, retreat socially. That's when I wanted that to go away. And to answer your other question, you know, I, you know, jurors are judges of the facts, not judges of emotion. So I don't want it to have an emotional impact on me. I want the evidence to speak for what it is. And, and that will determine the, the course of the verdict, right? It's not how I feel about the individual or how I feel about the crime. It's, it's, putting the pieces together. But again, we want juries to be, you know, again, you want people to pass through the system. Um, certainly there's, the, that experience is never going to go away, but you want people to be able to re-enter their life um, and, and re-enter their life meaningfully, you know? Yeah, I can't. I can't even imagine. You know, this Mark. I've never I've received a jury summons. I've never been on a on a jury, and I, I've I've oftentimes been in the news. Well, I've been in the news for thirty mm-hmm. years, and so I've wondered about how it does impact those who have to sit through some of those horrific trials that we cover well, here at the radio station yeah. or on the TV stations. And and I I can't I can only imagine like ten years ago this was the last thing that you thought that you would be fighting for was for change on this front. You know, you were going about your business, doing your job, and then you get this thing in the mail and chosen for this jury, and 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 everything changes. Yeah, hmm. and and you know, our system is set up with anonymity in mind, and I still think that's the right system. But because our jurors really disappear into the ether, and you never hear from them again, it doesn't mean that they're not suffering, right? And it doesn't mean that they're not um, living with negative impacts from the trial experience. And again, it doesn't have to be just those horrific trials. Like mm-hmm. I've heard from jurors who feel enormous guilt 
um, in agony because in the case that they sat on, the facts didn't meet a conviction. <laughs> that doesn't mean that the experience wasn't impactful. And so when, there, when there's an acquittal and there's the cry of anguish in the courtroom from justice not being served, it doesn't mean that justice wasn't being served. It means that the facts in the case didn't meet a conviction. That, in, a, in essence, is justice being served, but it just didn't result in a guilty verdict. But those jurors still deliberating for 10 days or 12 days or whatever it was, you had imagine the toll that took on yeah. them. And that's, you know, and so I've had a number of people reach out to me and say, you know, it's been five years and I still, I still break down because I, I, feel, I feel the pain of those individuals. Well, Mark, you've given us a lot to think about today, without without a doubt. And, you know, we'll be watching this closely to see what happens with this private uh, member's bill. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again sometime down the road. Well, it was my pleasure, and, and thanks for having me, and thanks for taking this issue on. How old are we? 34 years ago, Andrew Brian Adams released uh, Reckless, uh, the first uh, album to ever sell uh, 1 million copies hmm. in Canada. So that song was on here. Run to You, Somebody, Heaven, Summer of 69, One Night Love Affair. It's only love. There you go. So we'll hear a little Brian Adams throughout the afternoon. I'm and still, why not? Uh, why, sure, of course, it's a short afternoon for us. I'm still processing our last guest and topic. I think I've almost worked my way through it. Mm. Uh, you know, we talked about it a little bit off air. You know, I'm reminded of uh, going to see my brother in Regina when he was at depot training for the mm. RCMP. And uh, they give you a nice tour. And But he took me to the classrooms to mm -hmm. show me where they um, learned what they learned. And on the walls um, of all the classrooms are some very graphic pictures. There's uh, accidents, murder mm -hmm. scenes. Uh, it's not meant for public consumption. Mm -hmm. And it was shocking to me. Mm -hmm. And he had been there six months. That's uh, how long the course takes. And I, I, I was taken aback by the pictures. And then he went, oh, God, sorry. Six months of sitting through those classes. You get used to those they pictures. They get used the to the pictures, right? So, you know, I get it. Like somebody who had not, uh, like myself, who had not seen something like that, I can see where it would cause trouble. I guess, you know, where it, it seems to me logical that if, anyone serving the public in whatever capacity needed help that it would be available to them. Yeah, you you would think as and as long as that uh, confidentiality is still is there. So yeah. to me it doesn't make sense why if someone needs to talk to a psychiatrist to help them work themselves through some of this that they can't see a psychiatrist because yeah. that's you know there's there's patient um there's there's doctor patient Dr. confidentiality yeah. confidentiality there and I think right. you know as we said you know we were talking about this during the break everyone processes things differently. Some mm -hmm. people may be able to sit through something like that and it it, it not not that it wouldn't bug them, but it wouldn't cause any uh, damage or any long-term damage or maybe it's just a blip and they keep going on. Maybe able to just yeah. go on, live your life. It could be. The mind is a is a, is mm -hmm. a very, very interesting thing. And um, everyone handles um, 
especially graphicness quite differently. I yep. can remember going back to, you know, the Bernardo trial. I can't imagine sitting through the Paul Bernardo try and, trial and, and and having to listen to what they um, well, listened to. I can remember yeah. just, you know, covering it on the news and thinking, oh my God, this is absolutely horrific. The Lickness trial down in Calgary. You start thinking about some of this stuff and go, oh my yeah, gosh. Yeah, but you know, it's funny to hear you speak, and I know we have to go to uh, yeah. news here, but it's funny to hear you speak and not speak of the obvious because you're on the other side of the fence for me on this. In a newsroom, mm. you can't help but, this is my biggest problem, or, or I shouldn't say problem, it's my biggest challenge with working for Ched, is that you can't decide to turn it off and put on music. No. But you guys are all built that way. Like, you, everybody, no. you are though, like, I, how depressed am I after... You know, I, well, I, it, it ruins me I, every time. I can, I can tell you stories of things that I have covered, especially and I told it once on the air about a little baby, mm-hmm. a newborn baby that was found dead in a bag by Boulevard Lake in Thunder Bay and how much that screwed me up the day that, you know, the, the Mountie, one of the Mounties here was, was shot and killed and the fact that his killer called me on the phone that day and told me he was going to kill a cop. And I had no support whatsoever from any of the workplaces that I worked in. I had to go find it myself. Mm. Things have changed. I'd like to say things have changed, but oftentimes for a lot of folks, you find it at the bottom end of a, of a bottle mm-hmm. or whatever it yeah. is, and that's yeah. a sad thing. The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad.